it was a shock for me and I thought oh my gosh you're right I can't believe I've done that and it was a real watershed moment for me I was pretty horrified that I was doing this are you ready to know what you don't know about privacy pros then you're in the right place welcome to the privacy pros academy podcast by KZNT privacy experts the podcast to launch progress and excel your career as a privacy pro Hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy. Discover fascinating insights from leading global privacy professionals. And hear real stories and top tips from the people who've been where you want to get to. We're an official IAPP training partner. We've trained people in over 137 countries and counties. So, whether you're thinking about starting a career in data privacy, or you're an experienced professional, This is the podcast for you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the KZM Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila, and I'm a data privacy analyst at KZM Privacy Experts. I'm primarily responsible for conducting research on current and upcoming legislation, as well as key developments and any decisions by supervisory authorities. With me today as my co-host is KZM CEO Jamal Ahmed. Jamal Ahmed is a Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at KZM Privacy Experts. He is a leading global privacy professional, world-class trainer and lead mentor at the Privacy Pros Academy. Hi, Jamila. I'm so excited to be speaking to our special guest, Claire, today. Why don't you tell us more about Claire? Our guest today is Claire Archibald, and she is a BCS data protection practitioner, a DPO for schools, and a consultant at Education Data Hub. She is also a non-practicing solicitor. Claire has a wealth of knowledge and experience in the sector and currently works for Derbyshire County Council. Welcome, Claire. We're so happy to have you. I'm really excited to be interviewed today. Thank you so much for asking me. We're really excited to be speaking with you, Claire. Definitely. As we always do on this podcast, we start with an icebreaker. What is your motto that you go through life with? I think I've got two mottos and both of them have come out of my parenting experience. I used to be really hard on myself and really punish myself when I made mistakes. You know, I saw them, my children were growing up and they would punish themselves for mistakes and, and be really cross with themselves if they got things wrong. And I felt really compassionate for them. And I, well, you, you're little, you're only learning. And then it became a bit of a motto. And I thought, you know what, we're all only learning. You know, I really believe that you can make mistakes. It's okay. We are only learning. So that is our family motto. Don't worry, we're all only learning. And I say that very often. It inspires you then to be curious, not to be afraid yeah. to make mistakes and to enjoy yourself because learning is fun. And probably the second motto I have, again, is my daughter who taught me this motto. And she was a tiny little girl, very confident. She was jumping around. She's about four years old and she jumped around and she was making big star jumps and making shadows. And she went, look, I may be little, but I can do big things. And I thought, you know what, isn't that wonderful? I may be little, I'm quite short, but you know, (laughs) I can do big things. And, you know, we all have a role to play. You know, we each can have an impact. So that's my other motto. I really love both of them too. They're so true, especially when you think about what you said is so many people walk around life scared of making mistakes, Mm. scared of failure. And because they're worried and they're focusing on the wrong things, they're worried about what would happen if things go wrong. They really don't give themselves the permission to be all they could be and experience all they could experience and have all they could have because they're always focused on 
people would laugh at me if that happens. But when you say, look, don't worry, we're all learning, then it gives you the permission to go and try everything and really try and figure things out for yourself and have that richer life. And I really love that. And the other thing is, Thank you. yes, just because we're small doesn't mean that we can't achieve great things. Thank you. And, you know, you said a really interesting point there about fear. And, and I've really pinpointed included in my current role that fear is at the basis of many negative emotions so what might come across as anger or defensiveness or or head in the sand most of those emotions I don't want to sound like Yoda now but fear leads to anger fear of failure or fear of things going wrong or humiliation really significant issue yes I mean very profound and wise words <laughs> I really yeah I love those mottos I think they're definitely going to give me something to think about Thank today and the rest of the week. Our first question to you, I guess, is how did you begin your career in data privacy? So this goes back a really long way. I was a, a law student at Leeds University in the late 1990s. And data protection wasn't anything that was really ever covered back in the late 1990s. You had a bit of a, a light touch on it, but it wasn't really a thing. But what I did love was civil liberties. And Clive Walker was my tutor for civil liberties. And if there was a civil liberties module to take, I would take it. And it was all about individuals' relationship with the state and the right of the state to carry out surveillance. And you'd never think of private companies surveilling you then. It was all about your relationship with the government and Mm -hmm. and telephone tapping. I found all that really intellectually interesting. But it didn't really obviously lead me to a career. I recently learned that Keir Starmer actually studied at Leeds University and he loves civil liberties too. Damn it, I could have gone down the same route as Keir Starmer (laughs) if I'd have have copped on a bit. Civil liberties were really interesting. Couldn't find an obvious career path for that for me. Um, At the time, we had a a great law library and a a cloakroom. And in the cloakroom, there were all these advertisements from big corporate law firms. You know, come and do two weeks worth of work experience with us. We'll interview you for a job. If you get the job, you'll get your training contract. Two years, really good salary. We'll pay for your legal practice course fees. You know, so this seemed like a really great way to secure my future so I was quite ambitious and wanted to be financially independent and and get my career started so I sort of fell into that did a number of sort of Cook's Tour Road sort of vacation placement and got recruited by one of the corporate law firms and it had a regional office up in Sheffield great experience. My training contract went round all the different departments and settled in the environmental team. Really liked my colleagues in the environmental team. I found it was really varied work. So it was about your interaction with the regulator, in that case, the Environment Agency, and, and testing the mood of that regulator and whether the regulator was going to favour you. It was a good mix of litigation, corporate deals, looking at contracts. So the type of work, the varied work did appeal to me and I settled in that. What really didn't appeal to me, oh my gosh, was the European legislation. It was the most boring thing ever. Um, and I found it really difficult to read and understand. And I thought, gosh, maybe this is me. I really find this really turgid, really boring. <laughs> the sort of work interests me, but not the content. But anyway, went on, had children, ended up doing a variety of different things and not going back to the law. My life took me in a bit of a different direction. So started working with projects and I 
started to work as a mediator and looking at counselling and looking at that interaction and what makes people tick. And that's what I find really interesting about Jamal is that he's bringing his knowledge of psychology and NLP into his work as a data protection officer and consultant. I think absolutely the same. Um, It's about working with groups of people to bring about cultural change. And I think unless you understand what makes people tick um, behind that, then you're not going to win their hearts and minds. You know, I think lawyers and auditors would think that data protection is a compliance job, that there's laws to follow and you've got to follow those laws. And and that's kind of cut and dried for them. Um, But I think it's way more than that. I think it's about people and attitudes and that culture. And I think that data protection, the world that we live in from when I was in the late 90s doing my law degree to the world we live in now is massively different. We were just about having email accounts back in the 90s. So we live in a completely different world and data protection is part of that. That's a long answer to that question about where my career path went because it wasn't in a really obvious direction and I did not think at the beginning of my career I would end up doing this. I think that's really good. Anyone who's starting out, whether it's in law, whether it's in data protection, can kind of see all these different journeys of people that we're interviewing and it shows that it's not just one linear journey that you have to go on to reach a certain goal in data privacy. Thank you for sharing that with us today. One thing I'm really interested in is how did you go from becoming a corporate lawyer, going into mediation and all of these things and then finding a niche in schools where you're doing such a great job? I had a voluntary job and I was a a girl guiding leader and I looked after a group of brownies. Brownies are aged between seven and ten, all girls. Um, So I ran a brownie pack for a number of years. Absolutely loved it. And it it got me interested in the safeguarding elements of of looking after children. A couple of strands to how I ended up in education. So first of all, when Facebook was invented, I really got into it. I thought it was great. I was quite isolated where I was. I had two very small children. And I remember my first Facebook post really well. It used to talk about yourself in the third person when you talked about yourself on Facebook. So it was Claire is. And then, you know, you talk about yourself like a third person. So that was strange. And I remember posting a lot on Facebook of my children and them growing up. And I remember once trying to take a photograph of my daughter. And my daughter Mm -hmm. said, I'll let you take a photograph of me, but only if you promise not to put it on Facebook very precocious Ah. little girl and then it was a bit of a a, a shock for me and I thought oh my gosh you're right I can't believe I've done that and it was a real watershed moment for me I was pretty horrified that I was doing this really without thinking about their rights to privacy um so I killed all my social media accounts stripped everything down and I really thought really carefully about who and what I share with about them because it's for them to choose and also I mentioned being a brownie leader so as I was a brownie leader lot of these seven-year-old girls started to request to follow me on Instagram and I found that really really shocking and surprising yeah they had public accounts so I would was able to see all their photos and I was pretty surprised at the content that seven eight nine-year-old girls were on Instagram I think they were very naive and then I remember finding a photograph of the inside of my own daughter's classroom I was pretty horrified got to the bottom of it and they'd had a, a take your own toys to school day at the end of term and one of the children had taken in their mobile phone and had taken photographs inside the classroom and then they put them on a, a public Instagram account and I went into the head teacher and I said did you realize this has happened I'm really shocked this has happened and he was he was really surprised 
he was really shocked. He hadn't considered that that would happen at all. So some really big sort of surprising things happened, shocking things happened. Anyway, so as a brownie leader, um, I wanted to get back into work after a period of being out of work. And I saw a job being a business officer in a really small primary school. And I thought, you know what, I've organised residentials. I've done consent forms. I've looked after children's activities. I've looked after finances. I think I'm going to go for this job. And I went for the job and I got it. It was absolutely brilliant. I had to learn so much in such a short time, all aspects of managing a school. If it wasn't teaching, kind of fell under my remit, really. Mm-hmm. So really got to managing a school. And, and that was back in 2016. So we started to hear about the Data Protection Acts coming along and get ready for the data protection. Laws GDPRs come in. These are the 12 steps to compliance. And, and I got really excited and interested in this. And I was speaking to a senior leader about data protection. You know, I, th- I really think we need to be doing something to get ready for data protection. And when one of the senior leaders said to me, you know what, Claire, I've been in education a really long time. I've seen these fads come and go. I really don't think you need to be getting yourself worked up about this. It'll all blow over. I thought to myself, I've not heard of a piece of legislation that has blown over yet. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I sort of thought, you know what, you know, you're still a, still a solicitor, you're not practicing anymore, but you know, yeah. you do actually know what you're talking about here, Claire. And, and so I started to look around for advice and support. Um, and I was really thirsty for that resource and support and started to look into it myself and then just got more and more knowledge and, and pieced together, you know, what I'd learned in my previous career with mm-hmm. the bits of working with people and working with teams and projects and the safeguarding bit and really knowing how a school worked in terms of its day-to-day operations and all those things seem to come together really well. As I say, because of my experiences, it was something I was genuinely passionate about. And I don't think you can do this job without becoming a bit of a privacy advocate. I think you would be insensible if you didn't actually think and care passionately about those data subject rights and their privacy at the heart of it. Yeah. You mentioned that you came across young girls putting things on Instagram. How can we talk to kids about data privacy, kind of approach that subject with them? And Because obviously, I think when I was growing up, the internet was very new. The kind of only thing we got told was stranger danger online. And now yeah. they're using the internet for their lessons. Don't get that warning message anymore. I think it's not just children that are learning this. I'm in my early to mid 40s and it's our generation that are learning this as we're going along as well. I've certainly have learned this as I've gone along and and thought really carefully about my own privacy online. We're so willing to give away lots of our information and lots of our privacy for convenience's sake, aren't we? Um, So if we can have things pre-filled, if we can accept those cookies, you know, if we can have that ad served to us, we just accept that. So I think for children, Mm -hmm. it's being an open and honest and saying, look, we're on this journey too we're learning about this as well and then of course the obvious thing is to move and I think schools are doing this we know they have a lot about internet safety in lessons now so moving in a more sophisticated way and in an age-appropriate way helping children to learn oh it's not just about oh you don't talk to strangers in a chat room which is a really old-fashioned way now of giving advice and but to talk about that those nuances and and to build their idea of their right as a citizen of the digital world and we teach children about politics we teach them about democracy but let's teach them about the digital world that we live in as well as the physical world so you know teach them geography teach them history yeah teach them tech and and the world that we actually live in virtually as well we're all glued to our phones and our screens that's true and unfortunately it's become I think a bit more commonplace during this pandemic with the pandemic that's been going on a lot of children have been doing home learning they've been having laptops in various parts of their house 
house, you know, if they've got hundreds of siblings, they might be, you know, all crowded around laptop. How can we protect the privacy of children in their homes during online lessons when I know that a lot of schools like to record those online lessons for kind of future sake? So how can we protect privacy in that respect? Before I let Claire answer that question, I just want to say, Claire, before we even talk about how we can protect those recordings, should we really be recording children in their homes? And if we should be, or those that are, how are they justifying this? What are your thoughts on that? Yes. So there's lots of ways of remote learning. So first of all, there's remote learning that's not recorded lessons. So remote learning, signing um, pupils up to a platform, giving them a login and saying, here you go, kids, here's your username and password for this piece of edutech. We'd like you to use it to do your times tables, to do your spellings, to Mm do a class quiz. There's that aspect to deal with first. And what I, I would say is that there are loads and loads of products out there and they look really glossy and they look great on the, the cover of it. And it might be school down the road or, or some or teacher on Twitter with a t- large Twitter following who's using it. Saying, you know, this platform's great. I love it. Um, get your kids signed up. But just to really think about the data protection implications of that first and not just to look. And particularly, I've seen, I've seen loads and loads of US providers who have really great glossy looking websites, but really aren't tailored to the European market and really don't take the way that they're dealing with data to our laws so that's the first thing to say I must get that all out of the way because yeah. that's something that comes across my desk on a daily basis and is continuing to do so so that's an issue and schools need to make sure they're getting advice in terms of whether that those products are compliant or that minimizing that risk but in terms of recording online lessons should they be recording online lessons at all I think just because a piece of technology has the facility to do something doesn't mean you should. So you could, but should you? And I think that could, should question needs to be asked loads. So just because there's a a big red button on your your Zoom or your Teams saying hit record, then do you necessarily hit that record button? If that record button wasn't ever put in by the developers... As a school, would, would you say, oh, well, I'd love to use Zoom, or I'd love to use Teams, but gosh, it's a shame that it doesn't have that record function, so therefore it's not usable for us. No, they'd still use it. You just think, okay, well, it is what it is. So the first thing to say about recording is schools really need to understand why they are recording what they're recording. And I've asked that question. So we provide like a DPIA template, Mm -hmm. send it out to the school. You know, you want to use Zoom, fill that in and come back to us. And and they'll say, and I'll ask them, will you be recording lessons? Yes, we'll be recording lessons, they say. And I say, well, why? We don't know um, because of safeguarding. Okay, so I say, let's explore that a bit more. What exactly are you worried about with safeguarding? And sometimes they might say, oh, well, to protect our teachers from allegations. And I say, well, do you record in the classroom? No, we don't. I say, well, why do you need to record your online lesson to protect that teacher from an allegation? So that's the first thing to talk about. The next thing to say is, well, because of the safeguarding of pupils, there might be an incident in a pupil's home and we might need to, to access that recording. That's two mites in one sentence, yeah. which is yeah. immediately making me think, well, how necessary is it? Because if you're saying we may read it and an incident may happen, it's starting to look really not very necessary. And necessary is, is at the heart of everything we're, we're asking. And so, well, what about the existing safeguarding 
tools that a school have got yeah. um, so have you got a safeguarding reporting system you rely on teachers giving a written account of a safeguarding incident mm. in normal school life so you know if little Johnny is going to come to you and is about to disclose something relating to their family you don't say hang on Johnny I'm going to need to record this yeah you know you listen very carefully and then you record it with a sort of safeguarding recording system you've got and there are almost two, those existing systems yeah they're almost two separate issues that pe- that schools seem to be merging together as one mm-hmm. if it's mm-hmm. safeguarding then perhaps they need a new safeguarding policy to fit the new kind of yeah. learning from home environment whereas recording lessons is kind of completely different because students very unlikely to disclose something that's happening at home that could be a safeguarding in front of all their peers during mm-hmm. a lesson to me it seems a little bit confused it, it does it is a bit confused so then I think with virtual classrooms you've got to spend time thinking about your virtual classroom rules yeah so whenever my children start a new term at school and I say to them how was your first day in the new class and they go it was great we spent all day looking at classroom rules though you do that at the beginning of every academic year you look at those classroom rules so yeah going to be a number of people that need to understand and accept those rules so it's going to be the staff it's going to be the students and it's going to be the parents as well the carers they all need to understand what those virtual classroom rules are and I understand that recording lessons is is really important if you've got one laptop in a house and you've got three children you know mm-hmm. and the, the live lesson for child one and two are both at 11 a.m then you know they're both not going to be able to access it so yeah. there's a good potential that somebody's going to need to access that non-live time so you know make sure that that content is available pupils can turn their cameras off you can turn their cameras off you can only record part of the lesson so the part where the teacher is is delivering the main content of the lesson that could be the recorded section don't think you have to hit record at the very beginning and and turn it off at the very end some schools are doing like a a blended delivery so teachers are delivering live to pupils in the classroom at the same time as delivering live to pupils at home so really practical stuff really obvious you know the laptop goes at the front of the classroom and the children in the classroom sit behind the laptop so and being really clear and then really thinking about have you got any particular children in that classroom for whom this scenario could pose a real safeguarding risk so those children in care those children whose location and identity are very sensitive and are not widely known so think about those specific safeguarding issues and make sure your risk is set against those don't be afraid just because you've had something in place for a couple of weeks review it take time to have a breather then you know see how it goes I must say, gosh, I told you I would wind me up and stop me talking. Um, I must say, I mean, I was talking to a lady who knows a lot about ed tech, a lady called Jodie Lopez a couple of weeks ago in, in a webinar. And she was saying, you know, when we roll out a piece of ed tech to schools, we'll roll it out with five schools in year one. And, and we'll let them play with it and we'll see how we get on. And then the next year, we might roll it out to another 15 schools. And only in year three to five do we look at rolling this sort of thing out nationwide. And wow, what an amazing job schools have done in this pandemic yeah. that they have taken so quickly to these remote learning tools. I hope for school's sake and my own sake as, a, as their data protection officer that that pace of change isn't expected to continue because, you know, mistakes 
can and will happen when you roll out tech so quickly like that. But don't be afraid to build in some reflection time into the use of your tools. Change the rules up a little bit and adapt as you go along. And we're all only learning and go on that journey together as staff and students and ask your students what's working for them, what's not working and develop it that way. Reminded me a little bit of the motto you gave at the beginning yeah. about making mistakes. Data protection breaches are unfortunate, but they're unavoidable. Accidents do happen. I talk about data breaches when I talk about schools and I talk about data accidents do happen. You're going yeah. to have a data accident in the same way that your children may fall over in the playground and you have to have an, an accident book for the children in the playground. So you, you need to be thinking about your data breach log, recording all the near slips and trips as well as those big data accidents. I was talking to somebody yesterday and they were telling me they had a data breach trumpet. So every time they had a data breach in the school, they would blow the little data breach trumpet. And I thought, you know, again, that tolerance of learning a mistake. That's an interesting one for people to think about adopting a data breach trumpet, maybe one for businesses as well as schools. With all the changes, I mean, it's almost unavoidable that things would happen because it's impossible to almost account for everything, especially if you're in part of a school where maybe you put out a policy or maybe you've sent out an email and then it was kind of put to the back of your mind. And people having to do jobs that they're not normally responsible for. So teachers, for instance, emailing parents in a way that they never would have done before. Um, All that sort of stuff would have gone via the office. But now you've got that direct contact. So, yeah, but schools do learn and, and, you know, the important thing is if an accident happens to react quickly and to learn from that and to, to build forwards sort of stronger. So um, what kind of mistakes do you see that schools are making when it comes to data protection? If you'd have asked me this question 18 months ago I think my answer would have been quite different. I think in 18 months, schools have made, the schools that I work with, made massive progress. A year ago, I just said schools were quite naive and I described them as sort of toddlers in the industry and they were sort of yeah. grabbing onto the hand of the nearest person who, who looked like they knew what they were doing and very often those people were ed tech providers the schools were sort of assuming that people who knew more about it had the same interests at heart as they did as through a process of education and, and working with the schools and empowering them I'm finding that's really changing and, and more and more schools growing they're much better sort of ambassadors and advocates for their own data subjects they're great custodians of that, that data whether schools have, have learned that through working with us and generally an increased awareness or whether they've had the sting of a parental complaint to the ICO or the sting of a SAR making them realise they really need to think about their records management practices in school. Schools are getting better at this. I think that if you're going to ask me about mistakes and things where they still need to learn, I think they need to ask why much more often. Why are we sharing this data with this person? Why are we sharing all of this data? Do we need to just share a small amount of data? One of the things I look at is I see very often there are opportunities for schools and they look great and the schools will think, oh, that's a great opportunity. The body or the company or whatever says, well, in return for us giving you you know, this resource or this support, can we have your pupil data for research purposes? Oh. And there's a lot of interest in, in research. So you really think about, well, who's our duty to? You know, could we provide this content ourselves without having to give away this pupil data for, for the research? Ask why all the time and just consider what you're doing before you give it away. So even if that's a telephone call from a solicitor asking you for some information or a police officer asking you for some information you know 
do you need absolutely everything that you're asking for? Can I give you some of that information? Can I check your identity? So that's that very basic stuff, right? To, do I really need to take part in this research project? Yeah. Can I have that resource without giving away my pupil data for research? The other mistake I think schools make is that they they're very often they think it's an office job and they think it sits with school business officers. And obviously, as a former school business officer myself, I have great passion and I, I need to look after these school business officers. So I, got, I've got, I, I love an analogy. I use far too many analogies in my job, but I have a great analogy. And I talk about using new providers as um, taking pupils on a trip. And I say, look, if you're going to take pupils on a trip, do you do the risk assessment? before you start the trip or do you get on the bus and then write your risk assessment for the trip when you're on the bus you know on the coach to the trip and schools really get that it really makes them laugh but it's that 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 idea of you write your risk assessment before you get on the bus think about those data protection risks before you sign up for a platform sorry I'm all full of the phrases today Uh, lack of preparation on your part does not constitute an emergency on mine I've heard that one I do like that one (laughs) I I, I think I'm going to be sending that in an email to all my clients going forward (laughs) yes absolutely you know obviously particularly corona year we've all absolutely had to put some systems in place incredibly quickly and yeah. we've all worked as hard as we possibly can and that pace of change needed to be really fast in normal world do you need to get your pupils on that platform this week you've only just found out about this platform and you need to run with it now well no let's stop pause you need to think about financially whether it's a good thing for your school rather than just chucking money at this platform and that form and say if you think about every piece of data about a pupil being worth £10. Are you just going to give away all that value, all, all that, that money? Worth, yeah. All that money. Yeah, really so, yeah. So yeah. Think about the risks before you get on the bus. So those are my things I'm still working on in terms of helping schools. But I think we're getting there. I feel yeah. really positive about it. Good. I think that was really sound advice for schools. If they don't know where to kind of start, I think those are some good places. You know, in terms of schools, you know, for me, there's always those three core foundation blocks when it comes to the starting if on that yeah. compliance journey. First of all, governance and SLT. So yeah. make sure those senior leaders and those governors really understand that, that the book stops with them. I think a lot of governors and head teachers think they buy the DPO service because they think then that they're devolving themselves of any responsibility get the governance right really understand you know that it's a partnership and we're all working together training and that culture change piece and and giving we're a dpo as a service so we're not sitting in those schools so you know we're trying to coach and, and develop that culture of that key person being a data ambassador for us you know and really helping us and being our eyes and ears in that school and then the next thing is to get all you know your policies right get your structure in place that skeleton and that's when you're going to build from those those three blocks getting those in right first and then building from there it's no good writing data protection impact assessments if if your governors don't care or answering SARS if your records management is is all over the place so yeah it's about building in really logical steps what have you found that's really helped to engage or get the attention of those governors and those senior stakeholders it's about a safeguarding going back years there was a time that safeguarding wasn't a big thing in schools safeguarding was somebody else's responsibility schools are there to teach and now schools are there primarily to keep their pupils safe and and after that 
start to, to educate them. So I think data protection is the same as, as safeguarding and it's the heart of everything. So it's about really helping schools to understand the, the link with safeguarding. Schools that have pupils who are in care, who are post-adopted, who've got you know, access issues or difficult family issues, they get, um, get that link really quickly because they're already having to take really great care with their data because they know just how dangerous it could be in the wrong hands. Um, in the early days, we, you know, we would talk about the risk of, of fines, the risk of compliant, finding, you know, finding the ICO finding that you weren't compliant. I think that's less of an issue um, now. I think obviously the the attitude of the regulator is 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 not, uh, you know, of, of coming down on fines uh, um, that way. But we have seen schools really stung and really brought to their knees by parental complaints. So it used to be a parental complaint would always be, I'm going to complain to Ofsted. Now it's, um, I'm going to complain to the ICO. So we've seen parents complaining to the ICO or governors or, or members of ex-members of staff. It's not just a parents thing. Um, and or whether it's a, a subject access request that has brought a school to a standstill just in terms of the, the sheer amount of information that they've been required to pull together. That really stings for a school um, and is, is a bitter experience for them, but is always is often a great accelerator to change. Um, and finally, then, it's just about that rising awareness. Um, and I think you know, we're still only four years into the GDPR. I know data protection has been around for a long time before that, but GDPR was a real game changer um, and because it coincided with that that leap into a, a much more digital world and schools, like all of us, are waking up to that. Um, so, yeah, those, those three things um, have really helped um, schools us to, to get a buy-in from schools the safeguarding element the the bitter experience um, in terms of, 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 of bad experiences um, which have really upset staff members they've had to work really hard and then the, the just the general raising of awareness and hopefully the good work our team are doing in terms of of helping schools to feel empowered to deal with this sort of thing. And I think one of the uh, great things is that you obviously are in a in a, in a place where the authority, uh, Derbyshire County Council or whoever it is, actually see data privacy as something that is worth investing as something that is worth getting right. But when I'm looking around where I am um, in inner city London, sometimes I'm looking at schools and looking at um, the practices of where some of my family uh, members are studying, and data privacy seems to be something that's overlooked and forgotten. What message do you have to uh, those boroughs and those decision makers? Wow. Um, so, yeah, I'm really lucky to work in a team where we've been supported and encouraged. I mean, our schools do choose to buy our service. It's not automatic. So, you know, schools still have to make a significant investment to buy our service. We're we are sort of fully self-funded within within the authority and we're expected to recover costs um but in terms of messages out to other schools um i you know gosh looking back a couple of years ago there was an expectation and when the dfe data protection toolkit came out it, there was a suggestion that schools could act as each other's data protection officers um, so a business officer in one school could also sort of have a sideline of being the DPO for, for a neighbouring school. And I think that 
has, you know, as far as I've seen, proved to be really difficult and unworkable. Financially, schools really, you know, could struggle in terms of financing the investment to buy a a data protection officer that's going to give them all that support and and doesn't just give them a a sort of um, a theoretical answer. You know, they need real practical support. It's no good having, you know, 10 pages of legal advice that doesn't really tell schools what they need to do. So it's a significant investment for schools. But I would say the the time and resource that you're going to have to spend in dealing with a nasty complaint or dealing with a data subject access request is going to outweigh that initial investment very quickly. And actually, you know, if you really invest in this um, early doors and you you build up a good culture of compliance, then the likelihood of, of things going wrong further down and your school being pulled into disrepute, you know, I never want to see one of my schools in the local newspaper and um, being found wanting for any of their data protection practices. And, you know, I don't want to see any school being criticised. So, you know, schools need to invest in that like we all do. And I appreciate that's really difficult. Budgets are super, super tight. But yeah, get your staff out, get them trained, be curious and reach out for help and support. I think it is coming. I think we are in a scenario now where Everybody, including the, the Department of Education, after their ICO inspection last year, you know, I think we're going to see things coming out of the Department of Education to help schools more. So don't give up, I suppose, is the message to those schools. Thank you, Claire. We've talked a lot about what you do as a your day-to-day role. So what kind of tips and advice would you give to aspiring privacy professionals who are thinking about going into education? You know, the age I am, I'm still a relative newbie to all of this. And I think don't be afraid to make that change if you find this is something that inspires you and is passionate. I think the first thing, ask yourself, are you intellectually curious about privacy? Because, I mean, I jumped into environmental law because it seemed like a good job for me and I liked the ways of working and the different people I was working with and the kind of thing. But do you know what, the content, I really wasn't that interested. (laughs) Sorry. That then meant that it wasn't a long-term passion of mine. You know, ask yourself, if you're considering a career in privacy law, are you passionate about it? Mm Because it is quite dry, it's quite difficult. Next thing I would think about is get yourself a network. And this is where you guys come in. Um, So think about building yourself up that network. I've been really lucky. Some people have been been really kind and generous to me so people like Tony Shepherd, Barry Malt, Tash Whitaker they've been really generous with their time they've let me test out some of my ideas on them they've been supportive and encouraging and then of course going through people who are at the same stage of the career as me and we've all learned together so Mike I've been lucky because I work in a team with some great colleagues and we've been on a real adventure and learning together so things like Privacy Pros Academy absolutely fantastic in terms of helping new privacy professionals to get that network finding a mentor to help you through but also people who are at the same stage as you imposter syndrome is a big thing and we're all saying you all know so much I know nothing but everybody knows a bit about something so um it's really good to check your ideas with your network the last thing I'd say is get yourself an academic qualification so obviously you guys would recommend the CIPPE great you know because getting that academic qualification helps to give you the confidence and the rigor to answer those questions so you know I did the the BCS data practitioner qualification 
mentioned that was a great experience. I know that you guys obviously support people through the CIPP um, and the M. They're brilliant. That qualification has given me the confidence and the academic rigor. So if I've got a question, I go back to, well, who's the controller and processor? Yes. What's my Article 6 and Article 9 or Schedule 1 basis? Do we need a DPIA? You know, how are we going to apply the principles? How are we going to apply the right? How are we going to look at security and transmissions? And so every time I get that question, I go through those rigorous steps. If I don't know, I start with that. You know, not just doing the exam. You know, anybody can get through an exam, but really understanding the content behind that legislation and getting those bits in place is going to give you that framework for you to build your practice around. Thank you. So just to end on our last question, what has been your proudest moment in your career so far? Oh, girl, I was really young. When I was a trainee solicitor, Obviously, it was a, a, a big corporate firm with yeah. a big office in London and then the regional office in Sheffield. And there was a competition for the Trainee of the Year Award. And I won it. And I won it for my client care work. Because yeah. for me, it's really important to recognise your customer is and as an ex-lawyer myself I know that sometimes sorry lawyers lawyers can be fantastic at giving you 10 pages of incredibly accurate legal advice and no stone is unturned but as a client receiving that can you actually do something with those five incredibly accurate pages or are you completely overwhelmed I was really proud to win that award and get that recognition that you know it was really important to me that your advice was client-centered and intelligible to them and that they would go away from a piece of advice either really knowing what to do and having a a pragmatic step forward I would never leave a client with five pages of advice that didn't give them a route for where they were going to next and that's not to say I'm going to make the decision for them but I think hopefully we'd work together and then they would see you know the the route out so as I say for me client care is really really important you know as a compliance officer you might sometimes forget that there are rules and you've got to tell people what those rules are but you've got to help them to understand why they're important and and how to implement them and client care is everything for me Thank you so much, Claire. And thank you so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I've definitely learned a lot. And thank you, Jamal. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released. Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class privacy pro. Please leave us a four or five-star review. And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about, please send an email to team at kzient.co.uk. Until next time, peace be with you.